what does she say? Blimey, they're filthy. Like, we get it. They're the dirty dozen. We get it. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me. Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. And I have a voice. Ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So, this week, uh, to celebrate the release of the Justice League movie, we are taking a look at a movie that is also about a team-up, and that is The Dirty Dozen. We're looking at The Dirty Dozen and motivation. And to do that, I have guest Jesse Lawrence. Thank you for coming back on the show, Jesse. Hey, Dave. Thanks so much for having me again. Always a pleasure. Uh, so why don't you tell people how to reach you online? Because you are one of my favorite follows on Twitter, always willing to talk, especially about movies. So uh, for my listeners that are good people and are willing to talk on Twitter, how can they find you? Oh, shucks. Well, you can find me uh, at search to find you. And uh, Dave's right. I will always engage and talk back. I thought you were going to say, Dave's right. I am an excellent follow. I am fantastic. <laughs> you don't even know. Perfect. All right. So before I talk about motivation, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Uh, I do. And I apologize. I'm definitely going to slaughter almost everyone's name on my first one. <laughs> <laughs> to go along with the war uh, theme, I've got from 2004, A Very Long Engagement, directed by Jean-Pierre Jouenet. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, close enough. Who did Amelie, right? <laughs> I mean, kind of close. Who did Amelie? And it's with uh, Audrey Tattel hmm. and uh, Jodie Foster and Marion Cotillard. Okay, sold. And, uh, Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Five stars. It's been, yes, it's fantastic. But it's set in France near the end of World War One, And uh, Audrey Tattel is engaged to a gentleman who is in the trenches and basically goes missing under mysterious circumstances, possibly court-martialed. Uh, yep. I'm not the hugest fan of war movies. There are very few that I enjoy, and this was one of them. Okay, nice. And then number two has nothing to do with war, although I believe that the song War, What is a Good War, was prominently featured. (laughs) Um, But it's uh, just a group of guys specifically coming together for a common cause, and that is Backdraft from 1991. Nice. That's a good one. I haven't (laughs) seen that in years. That used to be one of my favorite movies. That was one where I kind of wore out the tape on that one. I was a big, big fan of that one. So I like it. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that one. Thank you for the reminder. Oh, absolutely. Ron Howard classic. It is phenomenal. Kurt Russell, Billy Baldwin, Robert De Niro, and Donald Sutherland, who's in both. Yeah, good call. Excellent. (laughs) So extremely well directed, fantastically acted, even from the Baldwin. I mean, he's lower on the scale, but he does a good job. (laughs) The Baldwin, one of the many. (laughs) Yes. All right. Excellent. So we're going to take a break. I will talk about motivation and then we will bring you back to talk about the Dirty Dozen. Hey people, my name is Peter and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old. And what that means is I may review movies I grew up watching or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. 
So it's time to actually talk about motivation now. So motivation defined is basically just the reason for our actions, our needs, and our desires. It's also viewed as a direction to our behavior or what causes us to want to repeat said behaviors. And of course, there's some psychological theory behind it. So in psychology, motivation is looked at as a cycle where thoughts influence behaviors, behaviors drive our performance, our performance affects our thoughts, and then we go all the way around back again. Each stage of this cycle is composed of lots of dimensions, which includes intentions, effort, withdrawal, beliefs, attitudes, and they can all affect the motivation that we experience. Most of the psychological theories hold that motivation exists purely within the individual, but there are sociocultural theories that express motivation as an outcome of participation in actions within our cultural context of our particular social groups. So really old theories are rational theories. It's the idea that human beings are rational and human behavior is guided by reason. But recent research has significantly told us that the idea of perfect rationality is not really accurate. That's not a thing that we as humans do. So there's things called incentive theories. These are based on intrinsic, internal, and extrinsic, external motivation. So intrinsic motivation has been studied since about the early 1970s, and basically it's the self-desire to seek out new things and new challenges, to analyze your own capacity and to gain knowledge. It is usually driven by an interest in the task itself and exists, of course, intrinsically inside the individual rather than relying on external pressures. So in early studies, it became evident that people would engage in playful and curiosity-driven behaviors in the absence of reward. So intrinsic motivation is a natural tendency and is actually a really critical element in, the de in our development cognitively, socially, and physically. Students in particular who are intrinsically motivated are more likely to engage in tasks willingly as well as work to improve their skills and that increases their capabilities. So students who are likely to be intrinsically motivated tend to attribute their educational results to factors under their own control. They believe they have the skills to be effective agents in reaching their desired goals and they're interested in mastering a topic, not just in achieving good grades. So traditionally researchers thought of motivations as purely driven by extrinsic purposes. But many more modern studies have shown that usually these are primarily driven by intrinsic motivations. So advantages and disadvantages. The advantages, intrinsic motivation can be long-lasting and self-sustaining. Efforts to build this kind of motivation are typically efforts at promoting your own learning. These efforts often focus on the subject rather than rewards or punishments. The disadvantages are the at efforts at fostering intrinsic motiva motivation can actually be really slow to affect a person's behavior if it's not there already and can require lengthy preparation. People are individuals, so a variety of approaches might be needed to motivate different people. So if you know the people in your studies or if you know your students, you might be able to connect those interests they have with the subject matter. So this takes time and effort. So that is a disadvantage to using intrinsic motivation as well. Okay, so now we move to extrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation refers to performance of an activity in order to attain a desired outcome. And it's literally the opposite of intrinsic motivation. It comes from influences outside of the individual. In extrinsic motivation... The harder question to answer is where do people get the motivation to carry out and continue to push if they need to persist? 
Usually this type of motivation is used to attain outcomes that a person wouldn't get from intrinsic motivation. Like intrinsic motivation is the easiest way to go about it, but if they don't have that, then we really need to push on this extrinsic model. Common motivations are rewards like money or good grades for showing the desired behavior and the threat of punishment following misbehavior. Another extrinsic motivator is competition because it encourages us to win and beat others not simply to enjoy the intrinsic rewards of the activity. Things like a cheering crowd and the desire to win a trophy are also extrinsic incentives. Now, social psychological research has indicated that these extrinsic rewards can lead to over-justification and actually a reduction in intrinsic motivation. In one study demonstrating this, children were expected to be and were rewarded with a ribbon and a gold star for drawing pictures spent and they spent less time playing with the drawing materials and subsequent observations than children who were assigned to an unexpected reward condition. However, there was another study that showed that third graders who were rewarded with a book showed more reading behavior in the future, implying that some rewards don't undermine intrinsic motivation. And it may be because the one, the first one, you just had the ribbon and the star, and you can't really use that. Whereas the reward of the book, they give them something that reminds them not only of what they were doing, but a way to continue doing it. So yes, uh, providing extrinsic rewards might reduce the desirability of an activity. And in one study, when children, as far as punishment goes, when children were given mild threats against playing with an attractive toy, it was found that the threat actually served to increase the child's interest in the toy, which was previously undesirable to the child in the absence of threat. So threat, especially for kids, doesn't really work. Rewards work a little better, but you have to give the right kind of rewards. Okay, so the article we're looking at is about social cohesion and motivation in combat, because this movie is a military movie. So the first thing this article did was operationally define something called unit cohesion or social cohesion. So social cohesion refers to the nature and the quality of the emotional bonds of friendship, liking, caring, and closeness among group members. A group is socially cohesive to the extent that its members like each other, prefer to spend their social time together, enjoy each other's company, and feel emotionally close to one another. Now, task cohesion refers to the shared commitment among members to achieving a goal that requires the collective efforts of the group. A group with high task cohesion is composed of members who share a common goal and who are motivated to coordinate their efforts as a team to achieve that goal. So I think at the start of this movie, obviously there's no social or task cohesion going on. And by the end of this movie, there's a fair amount of social cohesion with a couple exceptions, but a lot of task cohesion. And they did this study based on a army war college study about unit cohesion in the Iraq war. And they that original artic article argued that successful unit performance is determined by social cohesion rather than task cohesion. And if this is correct, then those conclusions have really important implications for scholarship as well as for numerous U.S. military policies. But this article actually disputes those findings. The original article actually ignored a pretty large body of empirical research on military and non-military groups showing that social cohesion actually doesn't have an independent impact on performance. And actually what they found when they re-went over the study and looked at older studies is that sometimes things the opposite of social cohesion, like the kind of internal rivalries that happen in military, in military troops, 
actually will increase the effectiveness of that group. So it's not as simple as just saying like, oh, well, if we all get along, then we'll all do well. Like sometimes you need the motivation to push yourself based on people you don't get along with. Like sometimes that can actually push you and move you forward. You know, it's the same idea, like it's a little bit different, but the same idea as a parent who gives tough love. Like you may not really like them when they're doing that, but sometimes it can motivate you to move forward. And it can be the same thing in the military. And they actually state here that military effectiveness military effectiveness results from many factors. So for instance, the success in the Iraq war may have just been due to differences in military power between Americans and Iraqis. Iraqi troops knew that they would eventually lose this war and Americans knew that they would eventually win. And this knowledge actually influenced their morale and combat performance. Or the difference in the legitimacy of the two political systems may have affected combat performance. There's actually a bunch of studies that argue that the civil military pathologies that Hussein intentionally structured into the Iraqi armed forces in order to minimize the risk of a coup actually help explain Iraqi military ineffectiveness in the first Gulf War. Poor Iraqi performance may reflect those factors rather than the low social cohesion. So because these soldiers, these Iraqi soldiers, were demoralized because of these strategies he was using to stop coups, that led to low social cohesion. So it's not the social cohesion itself that is the problem. It's everything that's causing it. And the other problem with the original article is they don't really define combat performance. They just say victory in combat is effective combat, which is true in a way, but it's not really measurable. Because if you said that, you would have to say the Iraqi military was highly effective during its conquest of Kuwait. And when you do a black and white thing like that, basically you're saying every single soldier uh, that had American uniforms on was effective and every single soldier that was on the Iraqi side wasn't. And that's just – it's not good science, unfortunately. But we do we do know that social cohesion in general helps performance, but we have to remember that we're not in you know a standard – situation. We are not in, quote unquote, the real world. We are in army world. Um, so, And that's the same world we're in when we watch this movie. So it's interesting that there's actually a lot of soldiers here who don't get along with each other all the way through. Granted, there's some that don't get along in the very beginning because they are not interested in serving and they've committed crimes and they're being either jailed for a very long time or be, or maybe being put to death. But by the end of it, there's some social cohesion, but you don't need 100% social cohesion for this military force to be effective. All right, so that's it for our psychological section. Uh, we'll take another quick break, and then we'll bring Jesse back to talk about The Dirty Dozen. Watched the movie, check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, what's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. 
All right, so we're back. So we're back to talk about the movie. A little behind the scenes. The reason you are doing this movie is you, I think over the last two or three times you've been here, you said, like, I want to do a manly movie. I want to do a really masculine movie. So The Dirty Dozen, here's a good choice for Jesse. Let's let, let's see how this goes. Uh, and as far as my history with this movie, it's nothing. I had actually never seen this before. Uh, this is a movie that, like, it's one of those movies for me that I feel like I should have seen by now, but just never got around to it. And the runtime might have had something to do with that, the fact that it's two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> but what about you? Had you heard about What did you know about this movie walk, walking into seeing it? I knew literally nothing. I was on the same, uh, you know, the same plane. Uh, I, I found out recently that it's one of my dad's favorite movies. Um, so I'm happy to have watched it now. And yeah, it's just one of those classics that you never indulge. Right. And yeah, the runtime probably has something to do with it. So, <laughs> All right. So let's <laughs> jump into the direction. This is directed by Robert Aldrich. And um, just generally speaking, how did you feel like this movie was handled by the director? Did you feel like it had a director's touch to it? Or was it like, because we've done some movies where you feel like, I don't really notice the direction here. What about in The Dirty Dozen? Uh, You know, I really did. And what actually really smacked me in the face, because it kind of like throws you at first, but eventually you're kind of all in, is uh, how much it exemplifies how like intensity and plot can drive action, Mm -hmm. like possibly sometimes better than flashy camera work or intimidating score. And I really loved, you know, all of the technical achievements and basics were there. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, uh, I remember being specifically impressed with two shots. The first is when Lee Marvin, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the Mm -hmm. actual character's name, but Lee Marvin shoots a gun at the end of the rope to try to get Jimenez to whip up. Right. And the he actually shoots it from below. So you Mm -hmm. see the rope coil and fall Mm -hmm. and it's just, it's pretty sophisticated. I'm not sure whether or not it's sophisticated quote unquote for the times or whatnot. Um, But I definitely took note of that. that. And then there's another moment in which Lee Marvin is driving that big tank thing (laughs) and basically a mirror catches him. So you are actually seeing his yeah action in the reflection of the mirror with the action in front of you as well. Mm-hmm. And that's just a really complicated shot, especially for what I imagine is a by-the-numbers action movie. Yeah, absolutely. That shot really stuck with me, too, that second one you're talking about. It actually made me think of kind of a shot in a Hitchcock movie in Rear Window. Like, you actually yes. see, you know, through the the lens what's going on. But this, in a way, is almost more impressive because there's actually action going on. It's not a, a static image that you're seeing. And I, I think this is a movie that probably doesn't get enough credit uh, for some of the directorial choices. Another shot I really like is uh, there's a scene where, um, I forgot his name, too, uh, where Charles Bronson's character uh joseph is getting beat up uh by these army guys who have showed up and i love the fact Mm. that he chooses to shoot from bronson's perspective so you really get a sense of like how intimidating this moment is and how big these guys are and i thought like you could have easily filmed that from the side or from over the shoulder of these guys but i like the fact that we have essentially the camera on the ground pointing up yeah it's static almost you know what i mean like it's it's really interesting um so yeah I, i definitely was drawn to uh, the direction. And honestly, I might have, I was probably drawn to it more so than current films. Uh, and in this, you do feel like you are with these guys, which I think is necessary. You have to feel like you are one of the dirty dozen for this movie to really work. Um, I also, I also feel like the, they handled the introduction of these characters very well. And this is something that is a real challenge because you have these, these 12 guys, uh, along with, uh, along with Lee Marvin's character that you have to introduce in the first five, 10 minutes of the movie. And I was actually reading up on this because 
after the introduction of these characters, you finally get the title card. You finally get the Dirty Dozen. And this is like, I think, 12 minutes into the movie. And this is something that, like, at this point in time was never done. Like, it was always, like, you have the title card at the beginning and you start the movie. So I thought it was interesting that he chose, like, no, before even the title comes up, we have to introduce the Dirty Dozen. And I think they do a great job of introducing these characters really efficiently, but in a way where we know a little something about each one of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, One of my favorite things was watching which one of the guys was going to smile or not. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yep. <laughs> some of them were totally stone faced. Some of them like were grinning like an idiot. And then, you know, there's uh John Cassavetes, my mm-hmm. new dead boyfriend like, <laughs> and uh, his little like half smirk smile thing and just kind of staring into the camera. It's like, Oh, Oh mm-hmm. yes. I like you. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You can just kind of tell right away. There's a couple of little smirk half smiles. I yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. I also think there's, the scene in the beginning where we first meet them, I, I think it's it's really interestingly shot because it would be really easy for us to just like you want to get moving on this movie. So we're going to have them do, you know, their march and do it well. But I like when they first when they have them do it the first time, like they're all really sloppy because they've been prisoners for this whole time and they haven't been drilling and they and they don't care about who they have to obey. And, you know, of course, we have, you know, your uh, your dead boyfriend who is like over it. <laughs> completely but everyone else is like okay i'll go through the motions i'll do it and i think that scene is kind of this interesting microcosm of the whole movie how they start off just going through the motions and then end up coming together as a team and actually performing in the right way right there's that motivation yeah exactly what did you think (laughs) as far as the tone of this movie because i'm thinking about like okay if i if i was a person who wasn't a big fan of this movie probably the thing i'd complain about is man there's a lot of time spent uh with training it, mm-hmm. I think when you start this movie and you find out what it's about, you're like, oh, well, we're going to get to the action relatively soon. But we really don't. The action's probably like, what, the last 20 minutes of the movie? So, like, the first two hours and 10 minutes essentially is meeting these characters and having them come together as a team. So, were there moments where you, you felt like impatient to kind of get to the action? Uh, not at all. Actually, I was really living and breathing in the characterization that they were, you know, uh, doing and. Uh, prepping up, uh, I was actually kind of dreading the <laughs> action at the end because I was like, well, I mean, this is a suicide mission and they're all going to die. Right. And I really love these guys and I don't want to see them die, mm-hmm. especially not Posey. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the other thing as far as tone is this movie was funnier than I expected it to be. Uh, kind of oh, going sure. in, um, I thought like, oh, this is an action movie. This is a guy's movie. You know, there's they'll they'll crack some jokes, but it'll be pretty serious. But this movie weirdly about a suicide mission is kind of lighthearted. Oh yeah. No. Um, I think one of my favorite moments to exemplify that was the little, uh, game of telephone that they, t- the, oh, that they that was play. Great. Oh, what a great <laughs> moment. Like, those are the two guys that like what beat, beat up a, what's his name? What saw. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like those are the two guys, those are the two, the two guys, two guys. And then it just ends with Telly Savalas looking over at him. He's like, those are the, Oh, Oh, it's you. Yeah. You know, speaking of Telly Savalas, what an interesting choice for that character. Like, you start off, I think he's probably the hardest one to like out of the group. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think the movie kind of plays a little bit of a dirty trick where they kind of get you to like him a little bit. And then, of course, he, you know, turns again. Uh, and I think the arc of that character is really interesting. And I, I really liked Telly Savalas's, uh performance. I mean, I, I thought he was just kind of perfect in that role. 
Yeah, he did a great job. And I think that's kind of the point of it is that like just because evil exists and exists within one vessel doesn't mean that good can't exist within as well. Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? So that's it's a like great you point. Really get, <laughs> so you, like you really get to see these little flashes of, you know, wow, this guy's funny and he's got a sense of humor and he's maybe even a little shy and, you know, maybe some of his morals are messed up, but, you know, ultimately he could be a good guy. And then you get to the part where, you know, Chick's looking for Wolfgang and you're like, nope, never mind. He's the worst. Yep. I was right to begin with. God damn it. Just get him, Jefferson. (laughs) Just get him. Yeah, exactly. Uh. I think the last thing that I really want to mention as far as direction is so interesting to watch this um, because I think it's uh, it's a it's kind of inspired so many other things like uh, the creators of the comic book Suicide Squad have said point blank, like the Dirty Dozen uh, is what we is what we were inspired by. Like this is we took this directly from this. Like it's basically the idea that if you don't do this mission, uh, you bunch of bad guys, then we are going to throw you in prison or kill you. I mean, that's essentially what uh, Suicide yeah. Squad is. And the other thing I thought of when they kind of sneak in uh, to this uh, this compound is it very much reminded me of Inglorious Bastards. Like it's not quite as funny as Inglorious Bastards gets in that sequence, but it's essentially yeah. kind of the same thing. And I was like, wow, how interesting. And also the scene where they're first kind of telling them their job um, before Telly Savalas uses the N word, it's very reminiscent no. of something like Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs. So I feel like Tarantino has really taken a lot from the dirty dozen. Oh, absolutely. I just thought it was fantastic. Um, and you're totally right. It, it set the stage for so many uh, modern action movies that are extremely successful mm-hmm. and, you know, convey a lot of the same stuff. So Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the acting. I want to start with Lee Marvin. I think Lee Marvin is amazing here. This is actually, strangely, the first Lee Marvin movie I've ever seen. Um, same. So he's one of those names that I know. And also, now that I think of it, there's a lot of references to Lee Marvin and Tarantino movies. Uh, he gets mentioned from time to time in Tarantino's dialogue. But he's just like old school cool to be in this movie. Like, especially the way he's introduced and kind of handles these guys, including your your dead boyfriend who tries to attack <laughs> him from behind. I thought actually all the <laughs> physicality from Lee Marvin was really impressive because it wasn't like he was a 25-year-old making this movie. No, absolutely. It, it was so strange to see such an older gentleman so nimble because the thing is that nowadays, uh, you know, the older action stars like what Liam Neeson and Bruce Willis and, you know, maybe a little bit longer ago, but Sean Connery, you know, they were, they were built. You could kind of see that they had been in the gym prepping for this role. You could understand it. And then there's a lot of like tricky camera work and stunt doubles and all that stuff. And instead here's Lee Marvin and he's clearly an intimidating figure. Yes. But you don't think that there's any way in the world that he's going to be able to take on my dead boyfriend. And he just like flips him out right over. Oh, it's so good. And even to the face and even the scene where he's like kind of challenging the guy to lose his temper uh, with with the knife. And I mean, it's it's a brutal scene. But you I think by the end of it, you understand why he does it. And of course, I think we'll talk about that more when we get to the theme. Were there any yeah. other of the dozen that really stood out to you in their performances? Well, you know, of course, there's my beautiful John Cassavetes. Um, but I was, I really connected with Jim Brown. It's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I thought he did an amazing job. Um, and, uh, oh, what was, well, I mean, Donald Sutherland. Yeah. He's great. You know, I'm not, yeah, I'm not used to seeing him like that. And he didn't have a very, like, a super featured role. No. 
You know what I mean? But like, oh my God, when he was looking those troops up and down, he was like, oh, never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently I did some research on that too. Apparently that scene directly led, led to him getting cast in MASH. Like they saw that and they were like, okay, we have our guy. So just that, you know, (laughs) he's not in it very much, but man, when he's there, like you really care about him. Like he's, he's kind of wonderful in that role. I think the person that I think Jim Brown definitely stands out to me for sure, I thought, especially for someone who wasn't that experienced with acting and was a football player, you're not expecting much. But I mean, he's right. in a lot of ways kind of the heart of this movie. And because he's a black man, he is kind of the symbol of this downtrodden group kind of more than anyone else. So I think he really, in a lot of ways, kind of is the heart of this movie. That's the feeling that I got too. You know, I just like, for some reason, every time he was on screen, you know, my heart just kind of grew a size or so. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, I just love you. Like, yep. <laughs> of course, um, the guy who plays Posey, Clint Walker. Mm-hmm. And mind you, with the exception of Donald Sutherland, I, I don't think I've seen any of these guys in anything. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Cassavetes, I saw in Rosemary's Baby. Yes. But, um, Another winner, that character. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, gosh. But he was, like, way too creepy to even remotely be attractive in right. that. He's, like, so just I'm right like, here on set. He, exactly. He's just the right amount of bad boy. Like, you just... <laughs> totally. Mm. Anyway. And he's got that smirk the whole time. It really works for him. <laughs> he does. It's ridiculous. Um, and then, of course, Telly Savalas. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's just a lot of really uh, fantastic uh, performances in this. Uh, but yeah, but I don't really think there's a weak spot here. Like I think they, everyone really, it's a really well balanced movie. Uh, and that kind of brings us to the writing for the screenplay. Like this is, I think, surprisingly balanced in tone and balanced in how they divide up kind of the characters and who's important when. I completely agree. I really enjoyed the writing. The cadence of everything, especially mm-hmm. with uh, Reisman dealing with the, um, with the dirty dozen when he's trying to basically recruit them and he's talking to them each in their individual cells. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, he's just like pulling out all the information and trying to be slightly manipulative, but they also know what he's up to. Yeah, I totally agree. There's also really great setup for the character of Major Reisman. Like the movie starts essentially with someone being put to death and you can see he's bothered by this. Um, yeah. That we're essentially killing our own here. And it's also, you find out that, he also is kind of a troublemaker. Like he hasn't gone to the lengths that the guys in the dirty dozen have, but he's not exactly respectful of authority. He speaks his mind. So I think it, it sets up how he's going to be at some point connected with these guys. Once, once he trains them up and gets them to a point where they're functional. Oh, right. He's kind of like the redheaded stepchild of the military. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, well, I mean, I guess, you can come to Thanksgiving dinner. Jesus. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I have one major problem with this movie and listeners mm-hmm. of the show and probably you will not be surprised to hear that uh, my one big issue is the kind of use of women as prizes in this uh-huh. movie. Like, oh, you finished your training. Here's somebody to fuck. And it's just like, yep. uh, and it's also like, I mean, I, at some level, I get it. It's the time it was made, and it's the hyper-masculinity of the military, and it's a celebration, and I get it, but it's still, like, it still bugs me. It still bugs me to watch that, like, you know, essentially, like, these women walk in, and they're like, oh, they're so dirty, and like, oh, who cares? Let's do this. It's just, it's it's a little, uh, it's a little on the nose. It's a little ridiculous, and I think really it all, the only point it serves is to separate uh, Maggot from everyone else, Telly Savalas' character. 
Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, what, did, what does she say? Blimey, they're filthy. Like, we get it. They're the dirty dozen. We get it. <laughs> you know, there are certain things that I can kind of forgive, um, especially in older films and especially in older films that are set in even like older time periods. You know, there are certain right. ways that the world was. I get it. The female issue that specifically bothered me in this film was actually like Wolfgang's girlfriend. Oh, and right. the way that Telly Savalas dealt with her, because at one point he's telling her to scream and then she finally does. And there's this moment, Dave, where I was like, I don't really know Ugh. where they're going with this. But she fully like leans in to kiss him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how she gets stabbed. And then yeah. she's got this slightly orgasmic moment where she's like, ah! it's like, oh, God, <laughs> yeah. stop. And, the, and then so you have like the, the people in the next room being like, oh, is she nervous about tomorrow or is she just passionate? It's like, oh, OK. But it, what I think does work and I'm so shocked by it, um, given the weird tone of this movie where it's half serious and half joking, is that the mm-hmm. deaths, the deaths in, these movie, in this movie are affecting. When, oh, yeah. when Donald Sutherland's character dies in this movie, it's oh, it's horrible no. to watch. Like, I was just like, no, I wasn't ready for this. And I think a lot of it is especially because he has that really fun moment earlier. And he's never he's not the guy who's ever like starting trouble. Like he, he's he sometimes is along for the ride, but he's not a jerk. He's just kind of he's kind of a slacker. And, and oh, so when he gets it, it's it's rough. Oh, yeah. No, he's just got that kind of, like, slack-jawed grin on, like, the entire time. And those, like, ears sticking out. He's just such a goof. He's so precious. Yeah. And especially when he's, like, standing out by the car and that German officer scares him by, like, trying to get him to light the cigarette. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And he just, like... He said he finally lights it himself off of his cigarette, just says Danka and walks away. <laughs> his little face yep. gets so excited. He just goes, Bitta. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's so precious. And then, like, 10 minutes later, he's dead in the driveway. It's like, God, thanks. Yeah. And then, you know, Jim Brown's uh, final scene in the movie. I mean, uh, is, you know, he really sacrifices for everyone. And it's. It's really rough. And I think it really helps, actually, that they take so long to get to the action because you get to connect with these characters. If they're into the action an hour into the movie, then you're like, oh, well, they're just cannon fodder. Like, who cares? Why? Like, when they were setting up all the characterization, I was like, oh, God, can the, can the whole movie just be them training? And then they're like, well, we're off to war. And then yeah. roll credits. Yeah, I exactly. Watch them die. I really don't want to watch them die. Yeah. Oh, especially, oh, Cassavetes. It's like, don't ever scream... We made it. We made oh, it. Oh, never. What? Not till you get home. That's How dare you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the only like negative of the script that I feel is kind of a giant loophole is the fact that, okay, so these, these Germans all go into this underground bunker and there's a bunch of visible air vents uh, on the ground. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. really? Okay. Well, we need something. We need to figure out a way to do this. And there's something I wanted to get your opinion on, actually, in that scene where they're kind of, you know... They're dumping all this gasoline down there and throwing the grenades down there and lighting everyone on fire. I guess Mm -hmm. this movie took a lot of slack because it showed American troops, one, being very similar to German troops. There's a scene where there's two German soldiers just kind of shooting the shit as as the Americans are sneaking by them. And it shows American soldiers killing innocents, killing, you know, these these random women who happen to be there at this party. My reaction actually had more to do with my intense hatred of Nazis and all people who are a party to Nazis. Boy, that seems like a, like a really uh, controversial thing to say nowadays, doesn't it? Right? Oh, my God. Um, I don't feel bad for people who know what they're getting themselves into. Sure. Like at first, like I want to feel bad for the women who are there 
And then it's like, bitch, you know that you're hanging out with a Nazi. <laughs> it didn't bother me too much, mm-hmm. but then again, I'm dead inside. So nice. I don't know. They like it. <laughs> so now we'll move to production value. So this is not exactly, it doesn't strike you as like a like super expensive movie where they pulled out all the stops, but I, I don't think they need to. Because you were with these guys as they're kind of building their barracks, it's kind of supposed to look cheap because it's all handmade. Like, it makes sense. Well, one of the things I really liked in the production value is a really small thing, but it's the beard growth of these guys. That it looks as it's supposed to. It's not like they're clean shaven every day or they go from being clean shaven to a full bushy beard. Like, it actually looks natural. And that actually takes – when you're doing repeated shots over numerous days, that takes a lot of work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It does. Um, I was pretty impressed with the production value, actually, especially at that chateau. And apparently that chateau was built so well that when they had the explosion, they had to kind of rebuild part of it because they couldn't blow it up because they built it too (laughs) well. And another thing that has to do with the production value is for some reason right there, it became extremely apparent to me how phenomenal the sound editing is. Um, I don't know if it was the frogs that were causing me to be extremely (laughs) uneasy Or like the very slight movement of the, you know, fancy shoes on the pavement as, you know, Reisman uh, was walking up and everything. But suddenly all of the sound effects and the precision that went into it were just very vivid to me. What about our favorite scenes? So what's one of your favorite scenes from The Dirty Dozen? Uh, Honestly, if if I'm talking about what my favorite scene is that's got the most uh, symbolism, I Mm -hmm. suppose, behind it, I really loved... Like that, they almost reenacted the Last Supper. Oh yeah, that was great. Yep. You know, I really, I really dug that because yep. there's, you know, the twelve of them, and then Reisman. You know what I mean? Yep. And they're all sitting on the one side, and he's basically like, "Well, here's the mission, guys. Let's yep. count it off." You know what I mean? And I, I really, I enjoyed the camaraderie. I enjoyed the glee, especially after their first successful little mission. Right. Um. You know, it. I, I really liked that scene. I thought it was a really good way to, kind of bookend the you know okay fun part's over we're gonna kill everybody now yeah yeah absolutely i think the only scene we haven't mentioned that's on my list is the of course i would say this the psychological test scene uh with charles Mm. bronson uh and he's trying to get him to you know he'll say a word and he'll think of the first word and he just keeps (sighs) thinking of you know, baseball imagery. And I love this interaction and it really got, it gets to the heart of something I experience on a daily basis that if a person is not motivated to be involved in treatment, you're not going to mm-hmm. get anywhere. And that's where he's at. He's just like, no, I'm just going to tell you what word I'm thinking of. I'm not even listening to you anymore. And Charles Bronson's deadpan, which he is so good at, is so mm-hmm. perfect in that scene. Uh, I'm actually going to be in trouble for not count- claiming that as my favorite scene because he talks about the Dodgers and the yeah. Dodgers are my team. So, And yet I still me. like you. I don't know how ah! this works out. I don't. So now we will move to the theme to get out of this uncomfortable silence. Uh, and we are talking <laughs> about motivation. So as you're watching the movie and keeping motivation in mind, um, how do you think this kind of colored how you watch the movie? Motivation is so extremely involved in almost every aspect of the film mm. that it was really interesting to watch the layers contract and expand. So it, it was really interesting. It was almost kind of like a kaleidoscope. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just kind of watching them all dance um, until they finally culminate in the major uh, group motivation at the end. Um, so I, I just thought it was really well portrayed and quite phenomenal to watch. 
Yeah, and I think we get a lot of different kinds of motivation in this movie, right? Like, you have that scene with Jimenez, like you talked about. I mean, clearly using fear as a motivator. Like, I'm going to shoot this out from under you, so you better climb, or you're going to fall all the way down. And then you have scenes, like, with, again, your dead boyfriend, who actually Mm -hmm. kind of stands up and is a part of the group in the whole kind of... Uh, standing up for being able to, you know, shower with warm water and like having them be motivated to be a team together. Like I said, you know, it, it was just fantastic to watch all the different levels, you know, play mm-hmm. within the characterization in each scene. It was really cool. All right. Uh, so that's it for the Dirty Dozen. So now we'll talk about the movie that we're pairing this with, which is, of course, I'm sure the bound to be critically acclaimed DCEU film Justice League. So <clears throat> what are your expectations for the Justice League? My expectations <laughs> are that uh, Gal Gadot is going to kick ass and be awesome. Yep. And uh, everyone else is just going to fumble around at her feet. you know what i hope you're right i hope that's true um i hope that's true too. given that Zack snyder was uh heavily involved in this movie i would find that hard to believe it's pretty you know it's it's actually good that i ended up picking a super masculine movie for this because i think you know the batman versus superman and the justice league probably fits into that it probably fits, fits into that uber masculine but i really hope that given how well wonder woman uh did both in bvs and in her own film i hope she has a very major part in this and i hope she takes the lead because i think she is really what they should be pinning their hopes on although i love it looks like jason momoa is having a great time as aquaman in this movie um it does it looks like he's not taking it too seriously which i think is good i think it's good for the dceu in general so and it it sounds like early word is this movie is quote-unquote only two hours and one minute which makes me very happy uh, after sitting through two hours and 40 minutes of Batman versus Superman. And I'm hoping it's a much tighter script and it's a lot more fun, uh, which it looks like. So I have like, I guess like medium hopes. Like, I don't think it's gonna be terrible, but I'm also not expecting something great. Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously the visuals look fantastic. Oh yeah. Um, I'm excited about Ezra Miller mm-hmm. because I feel like he doesn't get to do as much as he should. Yeah. So giving him to giving him a chance to actually be in a franchise like this, uh, I'm pretty excited about that. All right. So one more time before you go, why don't you tell people how they can contact you online? Well, hit me up on Twitter at search to find you and engage me in any conversation you like, especially cinematic. All right. After you're done hitting up Jesse on Twitter, you can follow us also. That's at PC case study and also go to followingfilms.com to check out great movie podcasts like the following films podcast and the true bromance film podcast and if you really want to go the extra mile you can donate to us on patreon.com slash pop culture case study and there you can support our show on a per episode basis so next time you hear us we will of course be doing an episode on the justice league so look forward to that All right, so until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Uh, I would what? You would be watching Dawson's Creek right now. Listen, I'm in an emotionally vulnerable state, and Dawson's Creek is like my best friend, so I don't want to hear it. You shut your man mouth, like right now. (laughs) 